Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for the theme song. We we love the work you do, Walter, and I really do appreciate your music. And if you'd like to know more about Walter's music, WalterParks.com is a good place to, to look. And if you'd like to reach out to me, JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, JamesNave.com. You can email me through my website. would love to hear from you. And if you'd like to join me and my creative business partner, Allegra Houston, every Saturday morning for a writing gathering, we call it the imaginative storm writing prompt of the week sessions and you can do that by going to imaginativestorm.com and we write with a group of folks for an hour or so it's good fun we laugh a lot smile a lot and share a bit of our writing so we'd love to have you the door's always open and and so it'd be wonderful to see you there imaginativestorm.com and if you've been listening to this show you know that i have all kinds of guests on the show. Some people I've never met before and other people I've known a long, long time. And today I have a, a dear friend I've known for quite a while. Her name is Susan Loomis. And Susan lives in Paris. She has been living in Paris for many, many years. You may know some of her work. Susan is a master chef. She is a culturally curious person, full of questions. She's a New York Times author, but most especially, Susan's a fabulous conversationalist and a friend of mine, and that really means a lot to me. So Susan, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Well, thank you, Navi. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's always great to have you. You were on this show a, a few years back. You and I were sitting on a park bench in Paris, just recording the sounds of the city and, and our conversation together. So I would just like to pick this up by asking you to give our listening audience a feel of what Paris is like right now as the pandemic has cycled through and we're still dealing with it, and yet we're still busy with what we do creatively. Well, I wish I could give you some sounds of the city, but you'll have to be content with the little hum of my dishwasher in the background because Paris, France is doing great. I, and I must talk about the pandemic. I mean, it's the elephant in the living room. It's all around us, but we are coming out of it. And I just heard on the radio today that children will no longer have to wear masks in school. And yet, adolescents will have to show their what's called the pass sanitaire. It's a passport that says you've been vaccinated wherever they go. So these are two huge changes. The feeling in Paris now is that Paris is back. Paris is lively. The sidewalk cafes are overflowing. The you know streets are clogged with traffic and bicycles and scooters and. It's back to its lively self after almost 18 months. To be honest with you, we had like four glorious months where I think there were three of us in the city. And that was it. No traffic. Buses would go by and they were totally empty. I mean, I would take pictures of them. And I say glorious. It wasn't glorious for the businesses, but it was an amazing experience to be in the city like that. But now Paris is Paris. We were all kind of curious about what it would look like after post-lockdown, post-everything. It looks the same. 
it's beautiful. It's, you know, we did have this little fire in Notre Dame, so it's not open, but we learned about 10 days ago that the walls are now steady. So now the real reconstruction can begin. And, and our president, Emmanuel Macron, stated the day after the fire that he would get that church rebuilt by uh, 2025. It is on schedule. So that's exciting. You know, Christo and, and Jean-Claude wrapped the Arc de Triomphe. You know, and I just read that something like 800,000 billion people have seen it. You know, they clock everybody who goes to see it. Really, 800,000 at least have come to see it in the last six or seven days. I had a lot of discussions about ephemeral art, and I love it that art does provoke discussion and thought. And some people are like, what is the point? You know, the Arc de Triomphe is so beautiful. Why would you want to wrap it up? But it's thought-provoking and conversation-provoking. So I would honestly say to anybody who loves Paris, Paris is here. I'd like to follow a little more on this ephemeral art. And can you describe what's going on with the Arc de Triomphe for people who might not know what Christo's all about? Well, Christo and his wife, Jean-Claude, both of who have uh, passed along to the great uh, art studio in the sky, what they were known for was wrapping monumental things. So I'd say a little over 20 years ago, they wrapped in Paris, they wrapped the Pont Neuf, which is the oldest bridge across the Seine. Basically, Christo was an artist, maybe, but he was an engineer for sure, and a media guy. He absolutely had the media, he had it all. So he made a video of wrapping the Pont Neuf, and I'm like, the guy was a genius just on getting the word out and documenting everything. But he's done lots of things. He'd go in the desert and plant mile after mile of umbrellas. He did this thing in Central Park where, where he put orange flags in it or something. You know, and it's art that's there like for two weeks. So he goes to all this effort, all these years of planning. And so the Arc de Triomphe, he planned and planned and planned. He did not, of course, get to see it done. The French government wanted it to happen. What they do is it's a huge crew of mountain climbing, people on ropes and rappelling. They use this beautiful linen fabric and they literally wrap this arch. So it went on for days. And to me, that was the art. That was the art, was watching men and women rappel down the sides of the Arc de Triomphe with this fabric that was like a ballet. And so the Arc de Triomphe is completely covered in this fabric and it's carefully pleated. It's I don't know how the hell they do it, but it's really quite unbelievable. And at night it's all lit up and it looks like a birthday cake. And so it'll be gone. October 3rd is the last day. So it will have been up for 16 days and they've stopped traffic around it. So people are really mad about that. So the whole point is it provokes people on every level. They're angry, they're happy, they're, they think it's cool, they think it's stupid, lots of conversations all kinds of people of every age taking pictures. It's something that leaves people with an emotion. And that alone to me is enough. I've always loved the word ephemeral. That was one word I learned when I was a child. And I was so proud of myself for thinking of the ephemeral mist in the, in the swamp or over the, the, over the land. The thought that I have right now, at what point does a piece of art 
cease to be ephemeral art. But as you were talking, I thought most art at some point will be gone. Even the most enduring art we have is ephemeral in the sense one day somewhere in the future, it will no longer exist. And yet we think of ephemeral art, maybe, is it two weeks, three? If it's there for a year, is it still ephemeral art? When does it become permanent? Maybe it is important to put a time limit on it, though, because it's clearly ephemeral, this wrapping. And, and I, I must say it isn't draped. I, what I want to give people the image of is as though a tailor took this arch that is huge and pleated and tucked and styled this fabric over the arch so that it looks like an Yves Saint Laurent dinner jacket. It's a wow. Like I said, it's a bunch of people with hard hats on repelling and climbing and draping. And every part of it has been thought out and carefully measured. That's why I say it, it's truly a work of engineering to me. But so was the Eiffel Tower. And I think that is a piece of art. So it begs the question, was Christo an artist or was he an engineer or was he both? And what's art and ephemeral? Well, we're all ephemeral. Everything's ephemeral, but I think if you bring it down from the spiritual or the vast, ephemeral art is lasting 16 days. And part of you says, wow, that's a lot of work for nothing. Who knows how much it cost? So it's very ephemeral because if you don't get there within 16 days, you don't get to see it. When you said it looked like a, a tailored suit, my whole psychology around it changed. For those of you listening to this conversation, you might remember years ago, there was a, a pilot flew a small plane through the arc part of the Arc de Triomphe. It was an illegal maneuver, and he did fit the plane sideways somehow and fly under the arc through the opening in the arc. So that'll give you an idea of how big that, that proposition is. It's big enough for a little plane to fly through. It's amazing. And, you know, it's awe-inspiring to see it wrapped, whether you like it or not. I mean, I sort of have little emotion, and I know that the partner I'm in business with just couldn't care less whether it's wrapped or not, but it provokes conversations, and it provokes thought. And that's one could say is the point of art. I think that's absolutely yeah. the point of art. And we could spend hours and hours, as people have done since the beginning of what anybody called art, discussing if it's art. It maybe it matters, but I don't think it matters as much as something that somebody makes with the intention of presenting it to another person. Does it move people? Does it transform people? Does it make people ask questions? If that's the case, I'm willing to say, hey, it's art. Well, I think particularly in this day and age, it's such a strange time because there there's so much violence on one side and there's war on this side and, you know, don't get me started talking about Syria and, you know, politics and everything. And all of a sudden you've got this, this amazing building coddled in linen. And it's like, wow, what, an, what a controversial, non-controversial thing. It's controversial maybe because somebody would say, oh my God, it costs so much money. But you know, Christo's foundation paid for every penny of it. So what do we care if it costs money to do it? It's not wasted money. That's what the foundation is for. And I just think, glory, hallelujah, something's being done for the pure joy of doing it, provocation, in a positive way. And what a good time to be doing it as Paris is coming out of the pandemic. 
Oh, it is so joyful. Life is coming back little by little. The little pieces are falling into place. And, you know, some of us who lived in Paris through the confinements were like, wow, we love the city with no traffic in it. Who wouldn't? But wow, do we love the city with traffic in it? Because even though drivers are getting mad and bicycles are bumping into things and everything, it's life. It's life is being lived. I think we're all a bit heady with it, to be honest. And going to the market, it's such a joy when the market's all open. They've been open full time for like a month or six weeks. I couldn't believe it when I turned the corner and saw my first market for a year and a half that was fully open. I almost started crying. It's just unbelievable. We are shifting a little bit away from art here into what you also love, the art that you practice, which is the art of of making food and the markets in Paris. And I've spent a lot of time in Paris. I haven't lived there, but I guess in the course of the last 20 years, I've probably spent a total of, if you add it all up, probably three years hanging around Paris with my friend John Van Hassel. And also I've spent a lot of time in Paris with you, actually. We've trooped around that city and then also much time out in your place in Louvier, where you taught cooking school for a long, long time. So I do have a a very fond attachment to the city that you now call home and have called home for many, many years. Let's talk about your your art with food and the things that you're doing creatively. And perhaps you could start with what you love about the market. I've been with you as you walk through a market. It's one thing for me to walk through a market and buy a, a loaf of bread. It's another thing for Susan Loomis to walk through the market because you know, at least in my view, everything there is to know about a French market. I don't know if that's true or not. You probably learn something every day. but um. Well, the beauty of being an, uh, an expatriate, in fact, is the learning is constant and it may be language and it may be a new, uh, a new pastry or something, but I find it eternally, uh, endlessly fascinating. And, you know, I was thinking yesterday, I went to the market this morning because I have a local market Thursday and Saturdays and I've found a farmer that I just love and I haven't been to his farm yet, but I'm going to go. And, you know, I've got this project YouTube channel and classes I'm teaching virtually and it's called dancing tomatoes. So I would invite everyone, please, please, please come visit us at dancingtomatoes.com. And uh, so I, I have a forum, you know, and even if I didn't, I mean, I, I was so excited to go to the market because I knew I had a list because we do, we do these Zoom classes with an a international group of people who sign up and you're all welcome. Our classes begin the week before by us sending an, uh, a mise en place video, which shows you how to prepare for the class. And so I had to get all the ingredients. And I was so excited because I had to get a lot of stuff and all these seasonal vegetables and it's a perfect season and it's kind of summer, but it's really fall and we've got every, it's the best time in the world to cook. Absolutely. So September, October are the two best months of the year to cook for sure, because you've got everything. And I couldn't believe how excited I was. And I get there early. So I actually get to talk to the farmer and the fishermen and everybody. The markets are just life. They're just life bursting at the seams and they change every week. That's the excitement. I mean, I'm so excited. I don't know if I'm going to find the celery root I need. 
hopefully I'll find the zucchini and there'll still be tomatoes and beautiful apples, but you never know. So you go with the shopping list knowing you might not get a thing on it because seasons change. Farmers pull stuff out of the soil. We've had the weirdest season on record in the last year. Call it what you want. The climate's changing. You cannot deny it. So we've got radishes in the market. We've got strawberries in the market. Good Lord. I mean, that's ridiculous, but the temperatures warrant that. So everything's all jumbled. And I could predict within 10, 15 years, seasons will be totally different. But right now it's just excitement. It's exciting. And go to the market, I fill my basket, all this beautiful food for 25 euro, all this stuff in my basket. And then I walk by the bakery on the way home and buy a croissant. And, you know, sometimes I just can't believe how the simple things like that make life just better than you ever thought it could be. That's what I get out of living in France and going to the market. When you first came to Paris all those years ago, you came with an interest in food. And now you've been in Paris all this time and you've done so much with food and helping people to prepare it. And you've written, I don't know how many books now. What are you looking forward to in this new business, Dancing Tomatoes? And, and how are you taking all that you've learned and putting it in this online proposition? And, you know, I know you are an entrepreneur as well, and you, you do understand business. So it's really interesting to see how you are reformulating your work to fit the needs of the time. Well, Navi, you give me a great compliment I may not deserve because do I understand business? I let my nose take me where it must go. What I understand is passion and what I have a passion for are many things that are all related. So I did come to Francis to learn how to cook because I was a journalist and I wanted to write about food. But what I ended up writing about really was food and the people who produce food. So had I known that such a thing as ethnography existed, I would have become an ethnographer. Well, I did become an ethnographer. There's anthropology involved. There's sociology involved. It's like, it's not just the food that you find on your plate. It's following it back to its origin. So that's what really gets me up in the morning is what can I teach people? How can I take this body of knowledge that has gone in different directions into 14 different books about farmers and their produce, about fishermen and how they work, about different countries and how they do things? How can I bring this body, distill this knowledge now to make it relevant for today? Because today we are not who we were when I began. So I was just giving a talk uh, at the Smithsonian about my latest book, which is called Plat du Jour. And the subtitle is French Dinners Made Easy. And it's quite a departure for me because it's a beautiful, lush photography-based book with wonderful classic recipes in it and lots of contemporary ones. But you know, I related it to the cookbooks I learned from. Julia Child was not only a friend, but a teacher to me. Her recipes went on for pages. The world is different now. People's knowledge level is different now, especially in America. We don't need recipes like that anymore. So I'm able to streamline those kinds of recipes and make them actually doable without having to devote 
you know, days to getting them done. And I think that's one of the biggest gifts I can give to people. What would be an example of a recipe that you've streamlined that would be easy for people? Well, boeuf bourguignon is a classic. And even when I was in college, you know, somebody who thought they were a French cook would produce a boeuf bourguignon and they talk about the days and the hours and the marinating and the blah, blah, and et cetera. Well, I've got a recipe for boeuf bourguignon and it's fabulous. It's an authentic recipe and you can do it for a dinner party in a day or less. I mean, you get your ingredients, you do your thing and it's all very clearly laid out because I don't have to explain anymore different cuts of beef. We know that. And I will give you tips and tricks that I think you might need. But in the end, it's a two-page recipe that you can make and you're not going to feel like you have to either sell the family jewels to afford it or put aside your entire weekend to make it happen. Some of the recipes that are classic, I deconstructed to make them a little more contemporary. And, you know, that's a very fun thing for me to do because that's what chefs do. You know, they take a classic. Everything's based on the classics. And you deconstruct it to make it a little more modern, a little more fun in some ways, but with that whole flavor bouquet. When you deconstruct these recipes, do you spend a little bit of time deconstructing them? Or do you really spend a lot of time experimenting with them? That depends on the recipe. It really depends on the recipe, but I, I operate a lot. I get a, a lot of ideas at the market, especially, or going about my business. My mind is never where my body is. So I'll be tussling with the recipe in my mind. All of a sudden I'll get it in my mind. And then I go try it. And if it doesn't work right at the first time, I try it until it works. So I did this recipe, it's called oeuf morette. And basically it's a poached egg in the sauce from a leftover sauce from boeuf bourguignon. So it's got mushrooms and bacon and carrots and red wine and beef flavor. But instead of that, I took the elements of that dish and I cooked them all separately and I put it on a plate and it's beautiful, very contemporary. But it's all the elements of the dish. So you get the flavor, but you get to look at something new and bright and fun. When you used to live in Louvier, you had lots of people coming over and you served them food. And I was there a few times when you, you did that. Do you have intentions of going back to the live material, the live people in the dining room dinners, or are you going to continue to focus on the broader reach of the digital space? Well, the answer to that is unknown. If I could read the future, I would not be doing my job. I'd be doing another job. But I mean, I'd be like telling people their future. However, I wouldn't go back to it the way I did it before, because why would I go back? But what I will do is meet with people on a different level. And I've had already lots of requests for classes or market tours or, you know, and that remains to be seen because what I really miss is the contact with people like we all do. You know, the energy that I get from people. I do love watching people's eyes light up over food. Honestly, for me, it's too soon to do that. I'm so involved in this virtual project and it's really being so well received that I don't see doing that right away. You and I spoke a bit before we started the interview and you were saying you had to adjust 
to the gear that you were working with, the space that you're, you're working in and how you present yourself. So I would love for you to tell us how this virtual project works. What, what, are, you, what are you doing? I know you said you were on camera a bit, but how have you learned how to adjust so you feel more comfortable with the camera? And the reason I'm asking a lot of people who listen to this show, they, they like to do things themselves. They like to be creative and they like to, to write or do their projects, maybe even launch themselves in an entrepreneurial direction. So I'd love to hear some of what you're doing around that as a way of learning more about the work you do. Also, maybe inspiring some folks, myself included, to to continue on with whatever we're doing and, and adjust to the environment we're in right now. Serendipity is an amazing word. I will tell you that this whole project started when I was holed up in an apartment in a neighborhood where I knew very few people and there were maybe six people in the building because the Parisians fled to their country homes. So my first act of rebellion and solidarity was to bake cookies and set bags of cookies in front of the doors of all my neighbors who were there saying, here we are, we can't see each other. I don't even know who you are, but these cookies will not give you COVID. God bless us all. And that started a dialogue with my neighbors. I didn't even know what they looked like. Fast forward to two months later, we dared to have tea together, distanced. And it turns out one of my neighbors was an out of work videographer as I was rather an out of work cooking teacher. And that's how the project began. So did I wanna do it? No, all my colleagues were going online, Instagramming and doing all this stuff. And I'm like, you know what? I really don't want to do that. It's just not my thing. I'm not a front of the house person. I'm back of the house person. But I was convinced to give it a try. And I have to say my partner is very flamboyant. He is a fashion designer and a makeup artist. The list of what he can do is amazing. He comes from Finland where people there are born knowing everything about technology. It's part of their DNA. So he convinced me with a little bit of makeup and this funny little kitchen that I had with very simple equipment that we could do this and we could do it because what we decided to do is like, I was used to a professional kitchen, all copper, all this really beautiful stuff. It's like, no, that's not what most people have. So let us make this real. Let us show people how they don't have to have a professional kitchen to be able to produce gorgeous food. And that's been our premise and it remains our premise. Little by little, I get back some of my copper, but believe me, the food that I'm able to produce in the kitchen that I have is what anyone can do. And that has always been my goal, is to make it possible for anyone who desires to cook to be able to cook. You don't need a professional kitchen. You need heat and some pans. And so that's, that's part of our premise. And yet it's sophisticated. So I'm in front of the camera all the time. And I'm not overtly talking about any of this. I'm just saying, you know, I know I'm using what I have at hand. And what people are seeing is they're seeing their kitchen. That is so simple and yet so accurate. Because you're right. People don't have kitchens that, that are professional level. I remember in Louvier when I would go visit you, 
you had a stove there that was the envy of almost anybody. It was a beautiful, beautiful professional stove, and you had a professional kitchen. And I, I love to sit there and have bread and jam and drink coffee and talk about whatever we talked about, like we're doing now. But it is true that I, I would never have a, a kitchen like that, nor would most people. So that's a beautiful way of, of going about it. Let me ask this. When you started your work in front of the camera with this skilled, creative fellow who knows what he's doing, how long did it take you to stop noticing that you were in front of a camera or has that happened for you? Well, it's funny you would ask that. I mean, I always know I'm in front of the camera, but I'm much more easy about it now because, and it's funny because my partner, Sami, he didn't know what he was doing any more than I did. I mean, we never worked in this context. It's just that we had our, each had our big skill set and we just kind of held hands and jumped and we were confined. I mean, we could not travel more than one kilometer. So there was no way I could go to my house, which I still own and rent out and get any of my stuff. So I had to work with what I had. So I was like, I can't do this. Sorry, sorry, I can't do this. And then it was like, well, I think I can. Cause what I have is in my two hands and my head. I was super nervous in front of the camera. Oh my God. And you know, we had to, every, every video has an intro and it's the same intro and I forget it 35 times. We do it 35 times. You just do it 35 times until you get it right. And we experimented with this and we experimented with that. And a lot of those videos we did, we practiced, I would say, for almost three months every day. Countless hours of work, countless ingredients, makeup, hair thing, you know, the whole schmear. I mean, hours of stuff that will never be seen by anybody because we had to practice. So you pick five people and send them your videos and they'll go, oh my God, you've got too much makeup on. Oh my God, you know, you don't look like yourself. Oh God. And so that's something you sit back and you say, well, wait a minute. They all know me. Of course, they're going to say that. In terms of content, everybody loved it. Everybody loved what was happening. And part of what they loved was the fact that I was doing my food, my technique, my level in anybody's kitchen, nothing special. And I can produce this food. So I found it incredibly gratifying that I could do that. And we got a lot of positive feedback. Being in front of the camera, you have to be up. So if you're tired or something's going on and you're not up, you have to be up anyway. But if you've got the right work environment, you could get yourself out of your whatever you're in and get up. And, and I'm always thinking of who's out there watching. And I have one very special friend in Los Angeles. And we just look at each other and start laughing. We just have a great relationship. So she's my person. If I'm having a hard time getting going, I'm doing it for her. You know, I know once I get in that groove that it's going to go. And you have a big audience and you've always had a big following and you've written many books. So people know who you are and they turn to you for the experience and the expertise you have in this arena of cooking in France. How is your social media proposition going? Are you doing that work yourself? We're about to take somebody on to do it because, you know, yes, I have a big following, but are they on social media or do they watch YouTube videos? Forget it. We're starting over. I mean, I have name familiarity, of course, and I have some wonderful, loyal people who are in my class, whom I adore. And, 
And, you know, people are always very excited. Are they going to jump on the bandwagon? Not necessarily. This is a whole new world, Nabi. This is a whole new public. When you do a business proposal, which we did ad nauseum, who's your public? How the hell do you know who your public is when people in China are watching what you're doing or people in Russia? You know who you want your public to be. Who are they really? What we're suspecting is our public is much younger than we, we thought it might be. We don't know for certain. Social media is vital, whether you believe in it or not, you have to suck it up and we're all in that game. There's a ton of competition for what I do. I mean, there are people with a gazillion followers doing what I do. The first book I ever wrote was about seafood and I can't tell you, I'd say, oh, I'm writing a book about seafood. Oh, well, did you know that 1200 other people are writing that exact same book? You know, when you're like 27 years old and it's your first book, you're like, oh God, I guess I better not do it. And then you sit yourself down and you say, you know what? My book is me. It's my idea. It's going to be different. Same game here. Same game here. Yes, there's a concept I came across a few years ago. I think I first heard it by way of Seth Godin, and it's called A Thousand True Fans. And a true fan is somebody who will support you when you ask them to support you. And they will spend $100 a year on a service that you provide or more. And you can rely on the thousand true fans to do that. Now, of course, the, in this proposition, it's very difficult to get a thousand true fans. And you have to cultivate them slowly over a period of time. And this project that Allegra Houston and I are working on, the Imaginative Storm Rider Training, we've been doing six months every Saturday morning a, a writing workshop. The doors open. You can come for no charge. It's just available. And in the six months, we've maybe had 30 solid people who show up. And it's taken us six months to get that 30. Now, as a result, a goodly number of those people really do enjoy what we have. And they're becoming true fans. And a true fan is like, I'm a, a true fan of Susan Loomis. So I'm interested in what you do. I will respond if you ask me to do something. I will respond. I will take an action. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a money action. It can be any kind of action. Would you share this on social media for me? Oh, Nave, I need help doing this. Can I depend on you? Or in a sense, I ask you for this interview. And you said, sure, I'll be glad to do it. So that's, that's how that thousand true fan thing works. Now, it takes a while to, to develop it. And we've noticed the six months is it's not that long. And yet it does have some staying power. Well, yeah, I mean, I think what we all hear is, oh, my gosh, this 12 year old uh, rollerblader, you know, got a billion fans in eight seconds that that's supposed to happen. Well, it doesn't. It takes time just like anything. It's building a community, a YouTube audience, an Instagram audience. Some days we get a bunch of people, then there's nobody. It's a slow build. One cannot be in a hurry because in this day and age, it's impossible to predict what's going to happen. And it is true that there is at some point a moment when it clicks. We're just delighted with everything that happens. We are just delighted. We started from zero. And yes, I have a following, but I have a following for my books. I have a following for my cooking school. 
you know, when you have a following, some people don't like it that you change. Some people aren't comfortable with the direction you're taking. So when you find yourself suddenly locked down with all your client base, what do you do? You pivot. You have no choice. So we did. I mean, we started from zero. We we had Sami had his cameras and his lights. I had my kitchen equipment and my skills, and that's what we did. So we are absolutely thrilled with every person who joins us, every person who comments, every person who sends us a message. It's like a big fat gift because we are developing our fan base, which must translate into some kind of financial gain because this is what we do. Do you see a book coming out of all this work that you're doing? Well, it would be a narrative. It would be a narrative. So that might happen. That might happen. But when you're so busy doing something, it's it's funny. The writing me is tucked away in a closet right now. As much as I would like her to be out and rearing to go, she must wait while I get this thing going. Because we all know if you if you when you write, you need to not have to worry about everything every day. You see what I'm saying? So, yes, there may be a narrative. Maybe it'll be part of the COVID narrative. I mean, this would never have happened without a pandemic. Well, that's true for me here in New Mexico. I came from Asheville on March the 20th, 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic and parked my car. And I've been here for a year and a half and I really have gotten a lot done. And my identity as a writer has changed dramatically in the sense that I now dictate most of what I do. I don't even sit down and write anymore. I just hit command and start to talk or I'll do what we're doing now, which is develop the content by way of the oral tradition, which is where I come from anyway. And the whole idea of what, what is writing has changed a fair amount for me. I'm beginning to think it doesn't matter how you get the content out and, and what delivery system it appears within. Some people might argue with that, but I've found a great deal of freedom in just putting out, out the material. So when you're talking about this narrative that you're creating in your little kitchen, this little non-professional kitchen, little Paris apartment, and yet when you touch the knife, the knowledge in, the, in your fingers, even though the knife is the simple knife, the knowledge is there. And when the knife goes down to the vegetable or the fruit, there's something else going on besides the blade going across the skin of the tomato. It's kind of the essence of what I've done for the last 35 years in many ways. And it's it's a beautiful way to get it across. But I will say I'm itching to write. I'm itching to get all these thoughts and ideas onto paper. But, you know, I've realized that if one does not have a social media platform, one might as well just become a bricklayer. And I don't have anything against a bricklayer. But if you don't have a social media platform, forget trying to write a book. It's a sad place to be because many good books will never see the light of day. That's my fear. If you're an introvert and if you love to sit and write and be alone with your thoughts and your ideas and you don't have the big desire to be out in front, it's a sad time in a way, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm not saying people can't make it. They can. 
But the kind of world I'm seeing that we're going through right now is is a curious one. In some ways, social media fits both the introverted person and the extroverted person. I've discovered in this past time that I'm a little more introverted than I thought I was. I mean, I'm kind of out there when I'll go to a social setting, I can interact and I enjoy people. But I've discovered upon reflection, having had this much time to think about it, you know, if I go to a party and there are a lot of people there, I tend to get quiet and, and move into a corner and not really interact, not be the life of the party. I tend to feel more, funny enough, introverted and very happy to just be be quiet. I've found that social media works okay for me, even though I do have that less extroverted kind of approach to things. Well, I glory hallelujah, and I'm glad you feel that way. I mean, social media is what it is. It doesn't make any sense to be against it or for it. It's just there, and we must use it to our advantage. If your habit is not to talk about yourself, and certainly not to do, you know, share your private life with people you don't even know, you're not required to do that. But I find I can easily forget to post or forget because I'm not thinking about that. I'm not thinking about who's paying attention to me right now. I'm thinking about whatever it is I'm working on. Maybe it's not the introvert and the extrovert. I don't know. I participate in it, but I don't feel that comfortable with it, which is why we are going to hire someone to help us. Because, you know, you need a certain state of mind and it doesn't have to be narcissistic, you know, but we need somebody from the outside to come in and say, okay, here's a cool story. Why don't we develop that? Because the stories are legion, but they're my stories. So I can't stand outside and say, that's a cool story. I've told it, or I know it, and it means a lot to me, but understanding how to share it with, get other people excited about it in a social media way requires an outside party. I'm thinking about the stories you have, the life you've led, and the ground you've you've plowed and all the work you've done. How do we take this experience that we've had all this time, all these things that have gone on and create an offering that allows other people to experience some of our experiences so that they feel like those experiences belong to them? But isn't that what you're doing with your writing program? That's exactly what you're doing. That's exactly what you're doing. I think that's all we can do. I mean, that's how I feel about it. It's like, okay, I can take someone from the outside who can look at my story and say, let's position it this way. My daughter is fabulous at doing that. And she's kind of lived my story. She walks in and in, in half an hour, she goes, whoa, that's a cool post. That's a great thing. Maybe generational. You know, that's what I'm thinking. It's just a different way of looking at the world. And I cannot deny that I come from a different generation different optic, a different way of looking at stuff. And I'm probably not as agile as some of my colleagues even who've just dove into this, just no problem. But I think you are sharing your experience and I am too. I mean, what do I have but experience to share? I mean, that's it. At the end of the day, that's all we have. And I do think you're quite right about the social media awareness. I'm involved in it. I understand it. I know the theories. I know how it works. I've been fooling around with it for ages. But you are you are quite right. I don't think about it as 
part of my DNA. It's something that I think about like a tool in a toolbox. Oh, I need a screwdriver. I'll, oh, okay, I need the hammer now. But if there's not a nail that needs to go into the wall, I'm not really thinking about the hammer all that much. What I admire about people who use social media well, that they're both in their life and outside their life. I'm intensely in my life, so I'm not outside my life very much. But that's just how I roll. I mean, that's why I've been able to write books and get into other people's lives. I love to get into other people's lives. I'm such a voyeur, you know, and with respect. I mean, farmers have opened their homes to me. You know, fishermen have taken me out on their boats. I mean, that's my gift is to be able to really draw people's stories from them. So when I'm doing that, it's 24-7 intensity. And I'm not thinking about a photo op or or what's going to play well on social media. That's just not how I am. So I think it's great to have this collaborative thing going on where we're coming from different directions. And I can see what they're doing and help them. They can see what I'm doing and help me. And I think really having worked by myself my entire life, collaboration is definitely the way to go. I find that to be true with Allegra, the woman I work with, just wonderful to have the collaboration and be able to think it through and talk it through and and have these exchanges of, of ideas. Somehow we managed to take the little tidbits and put them all together in some kind of recipe and produce something to serve up to the world. But I think to encourage people to do this is a marvelous thing because you know, many, many people have this create creativity kind of boiling out of them. And many people are solitary with that. So not everybody has a collaborator. But I think the beauty of online communities now is to be able to collaborate, even if you're not next door to somebody. Mm-hmm. I think the program that you're, you guys are about to launch is going to really catapult people into to writing and And I think that Dancing Tomatoes is more of giving people confidence so that they can understand their food. They can want to cook their food. They can want to share it with other people, even if it's their families, their roommates. Our worlds are slightly restricted now. We have to accept that. It's what it is. But it doesn't take the joy away from sharing. My goal with everything I do is let me introduce you to the people who produce your food you'll have more respect for it. You'll want to enjoy it more. Now let me show you how to take these ingredients and relatively quickly, relatively easily, turn it into something so beautiful that you become the center of your world. That's good storytelling. Can you inspire someone to become the center of their own world by offering something inspirational enough to give them the confidence to say, I, I, I am the center of my own world and I'm happy to, to be living there. Because at the end of the day, if you don't become yourself and you don't allow yourself to be who you are, then you do get off center. You get on your back heels and you have a little off balance going on. Well, I feel very lucky because with food, it's, it's probably easier than with other medium. Yeah, you can. And there are a lot of people hiding there who don't think they're the center of their world and with just a flick of the wrist and a little flour and butter and sugar they can be the center of their world even if they're by themselves you know and it's great to produce something i couldn't agree more and we have arrived almost to the top of the hour so 
from the point of view of the center of the world and people putting a little butter and sugar in a pan and enjoying what they cook, make sure you tell us how to get in touch with you so that everybody can tune into your YouTube channel and watch you make that food in the little apartment you're living in in Paris. Well, you've got to go to the website, which is called dancingtomatoes.com. And that will pretty much lead you through the journey, but also go on YouTube and type in dancing tomatoes all attached. And you'll, we're producing uh, up until about a month ago, we're producing three videos a week. Now we're down to two, but uh, with special videos coming out all the time. And in our live class next week, one of the things we're going to learn is how to make caramel and put it over apple and apple and rosemary tart. So if you want to do that or learn all kinds of little tricks, I invite you to live cooking classes with Susan at Dancing Tomatoes. Susan Loomis, thank you so much for the time you spent in this conversation with us. I really do appreciate it. I know other people do too. And hey, you know, here's to Dancing Tomatoes. May they dance forever. <laughs> Thanks, Navi. And there you go, my friends. That concludes our visit with Susan Loomis. If you have a chance to watch one of her Dancing Tomato videos on YouTube, you may be as delighted as I was when I tuned in and saw the tomatoes dancing. Can you believe it? Tomatoes can dance. These little tomatoes are dancing down the stairs in Paris. It's a great opening. I loved it. I loved it. Those little tomatoes dancing down the stairs suggest perhaps how your friends might dance away from the dinner table after you serve them a meal you learned how to cook watching one of Susan's videos. I'm drawn to the playful idea of friends dancing down the stairs after a good meal. I like playfulness anyway. I think our world deserves as much of it as we can give it right now because so much of the things that we've been dealing with over the past two years have been a little heavy, really, uh, burdensome. And so when we can introduce something playful like dancing tomatoes on the stairs in Paris, well, why not? I mean, that's what gatherings are all about, getting around with friends and having a laugh or two. Doesn't discount the, the heaviness, but it does lighten the load a little bit. So, dancing tomatoes, how about that? One of the reasons why I know Susan Loomis is a bit of a far-fetched reason, really, and I can credit a shortwave radio when I was a little boy to my connection with Susan Loomis. Why a shortwave radio? For those of you who don't know what a shortwave radio is, it precedes the internet. Now you can tune in to any radio station anywhere in the world and hear any language spoken with the click of a few keys. Back when I was growing up, the only access I had to the broader world was a shortwave radio. Unlike your standard AM, FM radio channels, shortwave radio channels reach great distances. So that means if you're listening to a shortwave radio, you could hear a radio broadcast from somewhere two, three, four thousand miles away. Nowadays, we can access it by the internet. That said, some people in the world, a lot of them actually, don't have internet access and they still use the shortwave radio to hear stations that are far afield from where they are located. 
So when I was a boy, I would listen to the shortwave radio at night and tune in to the different channels, and I would hear faraway lands, and I would often hear French spoken. And when I heard the French spoken, I was drawn to the French language and didn't quite know why, but I was just really drawn to it. Of course, I didn't study French in high school. I took a little Spanish and had no French in my life until I was an adult returning student and went back to the University of North Carolina at Asheville to get an undergraduate degree in international relations. I had flunked out of college in my early 20s and was determined to return and be a good student. So the international relations degree made a lot of sense and the degree required that I take a language. So I thought, this is my chance to take French. So I signed up for French 101 and started out studying French. And of course, if you've ever studied a language as an adult, you know it takes quite a while to adjust even the muscles in your mouth to speak the unfamiliar words of a new language. So I started in conjugating French verbs. I started with être, to be. Je suis, I am, tu es. You are, ils sont, elles sont, he is, she is. And I went on and on from there and studied a fair amount of French and actually did graduate with my degree in international relations and almost a minor in French. Does that mean I learned how to speak French? Hardly. It does mean I did become familiar with another language and that was what I was after and since then I've continued to play around with French all these years. That time was between 1981 and 85 when I was at UNCA. Now we're looking at 2021 and I'm still playing around with French, studying it if you will, and I would say I'm an advanced beginner which is just fine by me. After I finished my time at UNCA in 1985, I decided to go to Paris for the first time. I went, I arrived, couldn't understand a word anybody said. I could read a few signs, but again, I was fine with that. And over the years, I've visited Paris many, many times. And on one of my visits in 2006, I met Susan Loomis. She came to one of the Imaginative Storm writing workshops I was hosting in Paris, and Susan was an absolute delight. We were friends from the start. Of course, Susan was an excellent French speaker. She had been living in Paris for years and also had raised her family in Louviers, which was about two hours west of Paris in Normandy at her wonderful home, which was actually a nunnery attached to the Catholic Church, built in the 15, 16, 1700s, I don't remember. It was an old, old, wonderful Normandy home that Susan worked out of, which I had the privilege of visiting and really enjoyed hanging around Susan's kitchen. And of course, Susan and I spoke English, even though she was an excellent, as I said, French speaker. So I got to know Susan because of that shortwave radio, which I even now remember being so, so wonderful and it intrigued me so much. And I thought, oh, the French language, I would like to be closer to it. So I ended up being closer to the French language, listening to Susan Loomis speak French and learning a bit about French cooking. So the name of Susan's new project, Dancing Tomatoes, makes a lot of sense to me because when I've eaten Susan's good food she's cooked 
Everything seems to dance, including the tomatoes, and so too the people who gathered around the table. Once again, your guest dancing down the hall or dancing out of your front door after a good meal. Which brings us around to the close of our show. I do appreciate you listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The Voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. If you'd like to hear more of Walter's music, you can reach out to me, jamesnave.com, nave spelled N-A-V-E. Would love to hear from you. What's your story? Where are you in the world? Short wave your message over to me. If you would like to join me on Saturday mornings for an imaginative storm writing prompt of the week gathering, please, I would love to have you. The door is always open. You can tune in at noon Eastern time imaginativestorm.com that's the website so I would love to have you on the call it would be a real pleasure and that brings us to the end of the show once again thank you for tuning in I really do appreciate it and I hope you tune in again next time and until then I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line